Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Welcome to our Mehfil. I'm your host, Amrita Ghosh. Let me set the mood for this Mehfil by reciting this beautiful couplet composed by Uday Bansal. Tumhari taal se betal, dunya tumhari shok se gafil hai. Takalluf chhod bhi do, aao, ye tumhari hi mehfil hai. This roughly translates as, cast aside your inhibitions and be a part of our celebrations. This episode is called South Asia in Translation, and I have two renowned award-winning writers from India and Bangladesh, whose work in literary translations has brought a wealth of Bengali literature in translation into English, a legacy that may have otherwise not been available to international readers. I have with me Shabnam Nadia and Arunava Sinha with me in the studio. Arunava Sinha is based in India and has translated classics and modern Bengali works, have traveled the world into Europe, the US and Asia. Shabnam Nadia is from Bangladesh and currently based in the US. Her translations and fiction have captured a vivid and literary Bangladesh for us. Welcome to the studio, Arunava and Shabnam. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to begin with a curious question to both of you. Why translation? What began your journey as a translator? And do you recall your first book or fiction that you translated? What was that like? Dia, you want to go first? Sure. Um, <laughs> I think the shortest answer to that is that um, my journey began as a reader. And like many readers of my generation um, from Bangladesh and maybe even across South Asia, I grew up with a, a wealth of translated literature, beautifully produced books, lyrically translated um, children's books, mostly from the former Soviet Union. And um, that kind of shaped my childhood in, in multiple ways. It was soft diplomacy, of course, but um, it made my childhood um, a really beautiful place to be. And I still count a few of those books as, as favorites. So one um, I can't not name is um, The Casket of Malakite, Malakite Rejhapi, written by Babal Bazov. And it was translated by Rekha Chattopadhyay. And I still reread it every couple of years I go back to it. My first act of translation, however, was um, when I was um, a teenager, I was about 14, and I'd read um, a science fiction story by Robert Sheckley Jr. called, um, it was called, I think the, I can't remember the title now, um, I'm sorry. But um, anyway, I really loved it and I wanted my friend to read it and she lacked confidence in her English and she was like, I'm, I'm not going to read the story. And to me, it just seemed like a common sense thing to, I'll just turn it into Bangla, I have both languages. And I didn't think of it as translation at that time. It was, translation was something official that, you know, grownups did and there were books and things. I just, you know, I turned it into Bangla. But that was the first time I think I, I ventured to like flex my language muscles, so to speak. Uh, my first official translations happened when I had just graduated. Um, two of my professors were editing a, uh, a bilingual collection of cre creative work from Bangladeshi women writers. And um, they invited me to translate a handful of stories and poems. And it was through that project that 
I first realized just like how much joy I found in, in this act of traveling across and between languages. And that project, I think I was, was in my early 20s. Uh, it kicked off a passion that remains unabated. Arunel? Yeah, I think if you actually change some of the details, the Dia story would be my story as well. Um, so I used to read a lot and um, some members of the family were, uh, they would say in Bangla, Kia to Purish. What is all this stuff that you're reading all the time? And so I'd say, oh, don't you know, here's what I'm reading. And I tell them the stories in Bangla. So I guess it was it was quite natural. And um, again, I had no idea that I was translating. It was not a formal process or literary process or anything. I think my first realization that translation was an actual distinct activity from writing a book in the language in which we believe it is written, but is not. that's not always the case as it turns out, was uh, when Gabriel Garcia Marquez won the Nobel Prize. And in 1981, Picador in India released um, his first six books um, in this very beautiful white spined editions. And I think I think it was the first release in India. And reading 100 Years of uh, Solitude somehow brought home to me the fact that, hey, but Garcia Marquez wrote in Spanish. <laughs> and so why am I reading him in English? And until then, of course, all of us had read books in translation without really stopping to make that um, come to that realization that the words we are reading are not the ones that were first written. Um, so I, I was in college then and I thought, what does it mean to be a translator? Or rather, what does it mean to translate? Let's try to find out. So I actually formally sat down and just took some random text that I really liked uh, in Bangla and tried, and tried to translate them into English. But um, after I left college, we started a city magazine in Calcutta called Calcutta Skyline. And we used to publish, uh, I think, mainly at, at it was my idea uh, to sort of, you know, hone my abilities and or rather to test them. Um, we used to publish a short story in translation in every issue. And I did the first few translations. So that was how I started doing it on a regular basis. This was when I was genuinely young. Um, and then um, the first uh, story we ran was one by Shankar. And a couple of years later, Shankar uh, sent word to me asking if I would like to translate his novel, Chorangi. So I just sat down and hammered it out on the office computer after work every night, not having any idea. There was no real, I mean, English language publishing in India had started, but they weren't really publishing translations or maybe they were, but not too many. Um, and uh, I had no idea that, you know, it could actually one day be published. So this was 1992 and I gave him the translation and I moved away from Kolkata soon after to Delhi with my job. And 14 years later, in 2006, Penguin actually decided to publish Chorungi in English. And the editor in question called me and said, we spoke to the writer and he said, there's a translation already there. And he gave me the computer type script and it has a name like yours on it. So are you the one who did it? So <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things fell into place. And yeah, that's how it be. That was my first run, published but translation. So, so brilliant and lovely. I mean, you both have given us stories that go back a long time ago. And, um, you know, for Nadia, you're mentioning it happened when you were a teenager at 14. And Arunava, you had a magazine, uh, Calcutta Skyline sounds fantastic. Do you still have it, by the way? Is it still no, no, there? No. Do you have copies of it? I don't have copies here. A, a friend of mine who also worked for the magazine, he is the keeper. I'm the chucker. So he's he he's kept all, uh, all the copies. 
But you both talked about, um, you know, the translation landscape, um, if you will. And I wanted to ask about that scenario itself. How has the translation scene changed for subcontinental um, South Asia, uh, South Asian writing spe specifically? Are we seeing a change in readership with translated literature? Or, you know, is there the same kind of dominant Anglophone market? Okay, if we were to talk about India, I don't think the Anglophone market in terms of books written in India um, by author by writers who live here is necessarily the dominant one anymore. I think that has changed, at least as far as fiction is concerned. Uh, wow. That's probably changed in the past few years. And that, however, may have more to do with the fact that many more people are meeting their fiction needs now from OTT shows rather than from published books. Mm. So... So uh, you know the the serious reading, not mm. not not um, a new breed of writing that came up about ten or twelve years ago, which addressed a huge segment of emerging Indians who um, who are very aspirational, very utility driven, and who yet like to read things that will that can tell them what they can do with their lives, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction. Um, so a bunch of writers uh, in writing in English did uh, have a huge market at that point, you know, writers like Chetan Bhagat, for example. Right. But subsequently, that market has kind of has dwindled because that need is now being serviced by, um, by your laptop or your uh, mobile phone. And uh, overall fiction market, therefore, has become smaller. And um, at the same time, there's been a rash of uh, translated literatures into English from mm -hmm. the non-English Indian languages, as a result of which the Anglophone, uh, well, let's say the market is still Anglophone. The readers are still Anglophone right. readers. Right. But they're no longer reading books that are that were only written in English to begin with. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, what's also happened is that there's much more diversity now in, and not just in terms of the source, but also in mm -hmm. terms of the actual works themselves. There's much more diversity now um, in the books that people who are reading fiction in English in India uh, are reading. Fascinating. Shabda? I think, um, I think the scenario in India is very different than the scenario. I'm based in the US and um, I feel like this is a this is a harder nut to crack um, right. from, from South Asia. Um, one thing I do feel is like there is, I think, an interest. Um, translation is kind of having a moment. Um, and there is a interest from the readers, but I think that interest often doesn't get fed because you know, book publishing, like any industry, it's it's complicated and what gets published, where it gets published, um, who translates, who gets translated, like all those pieces uh, depend on so many other factors. Um, and there's a certain cautiousness among um, at least like Western publishers mm. about what readers will expect and accept, mm. um, which I think um, is, is, a, is a dampener on, on like what gets, what is allowed to get into the, into the marketplace here. Um, but you know, there was a big win recently, Daisy Rappel and um, Gitanjali Sri's Tomb of Sand. Um, sure. And um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how that unfolds in, in different territories and uh, what, what doors that opens up for the, for the rest of our languages. 
I agree. Yeah. And you know, Arunava's answer is promising in terms of the Indian publishing scenario. And I completely agree with you uh, sitting in, and working in the US. It's a much different kind of uh, space to crack in terms of South Asian literature or translated literature. Um, but I do have to say quickly that, you know, in terms of Europe and partially in Sweden, where I'm speaking from right now, my neighbor uh, a couple of months ago, and the title slips my head, um, texted me, have you read this work? And it was a translated literature from Bangla. So I was very, very uh, excited that this is happening across borders in, in various spaces. Hey, you um, told me about that book, Amrita. That was um, The Aunt Who Wouldn't Die. Exactly. I did text you about that, that, you know, you know, this is happening here in my neighborhood and this was fantastic. So uh, it's promising all, all around. Um, and I want to go back to Shabnam um, because I know that your new work um, is being reviewed everywhere. It's here um, and you've translated some very important Bangladeshi works into English. Um, the latest work that I'm talking about is uh, Shaheen Akhtar's um, Shokhi Rangomala into um, English version that you've translated, Beloved Rangomala. What do you think of the specific Bangladeshi translation market? And, you know, this is a follow up because I also read somewhere and I don't know where exactly that you were inspired by uh, some of the kind of imaginations of um, Sanjadila Bhansali's world as you translated. Is that really true? <laughs> I have to make a confession here. Um, I do not, have not really watched a lot of Indian film. Um, I think um, my movie watching sphere was um, Bengali films from both sides of the border and then English stuff. Mm. And a little bit of European, maybe. Um, I'm expanding my borders now, um, but but yeah. So <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. Um, about the um, translation um, scenario in Bangladesh, it's it's like I've, I've mentioned that like the it's, it's very different than than in India, and um, <clears throat> English doesn't quite operate in the same way. And my impression about um, English in India is that it's it's truly kind of a bridge language given the enormous linguistic diversity um, of the country. Bangladesh isn't quite a monolingual country, although many of us would like to think so, but we aren't. Um, and it doesn't, but it still doesn't have the same kind of uh, variety. And, and you know, that's a, lot, that's a longer discussion and, and uh, perhaps out of the scope of our conversation today. But um, speaking of the translation market itself, in Bangladesh, very naturally, um, we have a much larger readership for works translated into Bangla from other mm. languages. Um, unfortunately, the publishing industry is still not very robust. And um, like we hear that sales are high, um, so there's a market, but mm. it lacks transparency. Data is hard to come by. Um, sometimes, often, writers are exploited. So, and, and, but you know, I, I don't really operate in that space a lot. So my sphere is more the Bangla to English scene. And I've not lived in, in one of the <laughs> And um, I do try to keep up, but it's not the, quite the same as, as being there. So um, I don't really have too much to, to say about that, to be honest. Sure. The market for English language books, whether written in English or translated into English in Bangladesh, does exist. It's small, however. 
Um, but again, my experience has been that um, that segment of readers who read in English aren't as interested in translations from Bangladeshi or Bengali authors. Hmm. Which is one of the reasons I sought publication in in other regions. And what about you know this particular? Uh, I think it was a review in Hindustan Times that came about very recently, as of probably last week or this week, yesterday or two days ago. It was two days yeah. ago. So they were talking about this uh, Bansali imagination kind of world. Uh, what would you have to say about that in your recent translation? I, I had to look up who this was. <laughs> I had to Google your name to find out who this was because I had no idea. Oh my um, goodness! Wow. I, I told you I'm very ignorant about um, Indian film. Well, that's a kind of an interesting thing that the comparison <laughs> of that world that you created in your language. Um, but the other comparison was to um, to George R R Martin. I don't know if I'm saying his name wrong. Oh. Yeah, I think it was, I, I read it last night. I read the review last night and at the very end, the reviewer does two comparisons. Um, and those are the two names. I was like, okay, I know one, I don't know the other. <laughs> the games of I know one name, but I have not watched Game of Thrones. So again, I was like, I'm ignorant about both of these things. <laughs> and it almost seemed like it was kind of your voice that was being mentioned that you know uh, you had imagined these two worlds so it's pretty interesting how these reviews kind of happen um, but Arunava I'm interested in something that has fascinated me for a long time and I um, I'm going to write about this too and I've read so many of your translated works one this particular one sticks out for me because of this sort <clears> of extraordinary range, the subject, the use of language, and I'm talking about Robishankar Bal's uh, Dozaknama, and originally written in Bangla. It is about these two iconic Urdu writers, Mirza Ghalib and Sadat Hasan Manto, and um, in translation conversations in hell, um, ultimately translated into English by you, and the text has translations of Urdu couplets and poetry in each of these chapters as they begin. And at times, Bengali words are thrown into the text. How difficult was it for you to translate such a linguistically sort of patchy text? Dunzaknama is a mood, you know. And uh, if you if you start thinking of it in terms of language, then you are not going to be able to uh, swim in it. So you just go with whatever it throws at you and it doesn't matter what language is being used or what anachronisms there are. I mean, for example, you know, there's a part where Ghalib quotes Tagore. So uh, it's beautiful, really, the way he does it. Um, and you can't let these things stop you, right? As far mm. as I was concerned, it was a Bangla text. I know that uh, Robi Shankar Bal was looking at various at source material in various languages, but I did not stop to think about that because I wanted to go with what the writer had done. I mm. didn't want to insert myself into a process of, um, you know, looking up the original couplets or trying to figure out what lay behind them or what mm. the Urdu text said and so on. I mm. had a writer's imagination transforming the material he had into a book. And that was the book I was translating. So mm. I stayed with that. And I, I actually did not consult anything uh, that Ghalib had written or in any other translation, because I felt even if Rabi Shankar Ball had done his own version of it, I would stick right. with that version because that is what he had done. Hmm. I was not 
you know, it, it's not a biography. It's not <laughs> meant to be a translation of Ghalib's works or Manto's works for that matter. So that was that was the thinking. And once that happened, it was not a problem anymore. You know, it was a Bangla text. That's fascinating. And you bring up a really important sort of subject in translation that we have around. There's a debate about fidelity and infidelity in translation. And this is for both of you translators who are very loyal to the text and those who take some kind of creative leeway. There are two groups almost. Where do you both stand when it comes to this? And I even hear th there's another sort of category called transcreation. <laughs> so what, what do you think about the kind of debate? I think a lot of times those debates are more academic than anything else. Um, Aruna and I have had um, uh, a working relationship and a, and a friendship uh, for many years now. And I think both of us, both of us, we're practicing translators. Um, I can't speak to Orunava's experience, but I took one course maybe. Um, and while it, like my practices has not been informed by any academic theory or like I've learned as I've gone along. And it is like any creative work, um, it's an evolving process. And so I can look at, you know, translations I've done like almost 20 years ago and I can look at what I'm doing now and I can see like, you know, the difference in, in how I approach anything. Um, mm. And for me, some some texts allow more space than others and demand more space than others. Overall, mm. I think what I try to do is I, I try to stick as close as I can to the text itself. But um, I don't think it's it's not fidelity to to move away if that's what the text requires. My end goal is always to try and evoke the, the same emotional response that the original evoked in me. And uh, I want the English language reader to feel what I felt when I first encountered the text. And um, I, think, I think that's all we can do. And this is also why a translation is, this is why translation is creative because it's not just one language to another. It's a particular translator's um, reading and interpretation, and in, in like you know, bringing all of that to the to the end product is what you're getting as a reader. So if you give both of us the same text, you will maybe come up with very different translations because you know the way he uses language and the way I use language and the way we um, interpret different. It's, you know who I am as a translator will to some extent seep into my text. And I, I think that's like, that's how I think about it. That's beautifully said, Arunava. Yeah, what they are said. I mean, I, I don't really have much to add to that. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to say that, I know all these very cute um, arguments and, and discussion that take place about whether translation is creative writing or whether there's transcreation. I think all of this is very meaningless. Because it is a process and the reader doesn't care whether the translator is a creative writer or not, right? The reader is reading uh, Shai Akhtar and the reader does not want to read anyone else. It, let's be very clear about that, right? The reader does not want to want an interpretation, interpretative dance based on Shai Akhtar's text, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's what we, they're reading. And as translators, it is our ethical responsibility as they are to give the reader 
as close an experience as possible to the one we ourselves got when reading that text. Now mm -hmm. we can get better and better uh, uh, as we go along in uh, as readers. You know, we can stop being ourselves and we can try to be the universal reader or something like that. But we'll never actually get there. Right. So eventually every book is reinvented when it's read. It's mm. a combination. It's a collaboration between the writer and the reader. But what we can hope for is that we don't bring our consciously. We don't bring our predilections and biases and, and philosophies and ideas into the translation. We don't inject ourselves uh, mm. into it. Mm. Um, and uh, in order to achieve what we are trying to achieve, this is not about improving the text. It is about trying to achieve what we are trying to achieve. And sometimes mm. using the exact same words in a different language will not achieve it. So that's when you do what you need to achieve that. But it is very much about fidelity. Mm. I mean, using a different set of words is not about moving away from the framework of fidelity at all. On the contrary, you are actually not taking the easy solution. You are actually right. saying that I'm going to try harder and do other things in order to arrive at the same effect. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes these things are so um, practical things. For example, you know, both Dia and I work from Bangla and we have a word in Bangla, which is Bikel. Hmm. Right. Bikel is a particular part of the day in a tropical country. Right. Right. So it's like. 3.30, 4 o'clock till about 6 o'clock. And right. it doesn't change very much depending on the season because in a tropical geography, it you know the, the uh, sunset hours don't change too much. Hmm. The concept does not exist in, in countries which are closer to the, uh, to the poles, let's yes. say the UK and much of the US, because in summer you could have daylight up to 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock and in winter uh, the sun will go away at 3 o'clock or 3.30. So the word does not exist. Now, when you encounter it, it Bikel is also a mood. You know, it's like if you're a child, then it's when you go out to play. You're out of school and it's the time you're playing. If you're at home, it's when you maybe stop doing whatever you're doing. You have a shower and you go out and you do. You, it's a little time for yourself, you know, and to uh, face the world when it is in a more pleasant form. It is not very hot. The sun's mm -hmm. going down. There's a breeze. It's all of these things. Now. If you would say late afternoon, you can to convey mm -hmm. the information of Bikel, you're not going to be able to convey much of the emotional content of Bikel, right? So depending on the context, you may need to do something there, right? That's Does it. that mean I'm trying to improve on the text? No, the mm -hmm. original text uses a shorthand for a very big thing. The shorthand yeah. is not available. So I have to unpack it, open it up or contextually do something. Sometimes I may mm -hmm. not bother because it may not mm -hmm. be relevant. So stuff like this keeps happening all the time, right? Mm -hmm. But that is very much uh, a product of the of the desire to ensure fidelity. Mm -hmm. I love so, the way that you both are really unpacking how it is close to the text. And um, Shabnam, you said what the text requires. And uh, Arunava, you just mentioned um, ethical responsibility. And it is about fidelity to the text. Um, and, you know, I'm staying with this, with the idea of choice, the translators you both make. And, you know, still academically going back, there's so much of translation theory now, uh, the original or the source text and the translated work. And it is understandable that not everything from the original can be translated into the new version. As you mentioned, the, the concept of BK let's, as a mood. I love that. Um, and there is also this kind of trope that circulates about untranslate untranslatability. 
So have you faced such a challenge? And you mentioned, Arunava, something like this, that, you know, with the concept of BKL, it's not late afternoon. It's, you know, a lot of other larger things. So what are the choices then that you both make as translators to leave things in the original text? Or how does the process work for both of you? Yeah, well, I don't know that there's any one rule for this. You know, it will vary from text to text. Um, and again, I don't believe anything is untranslatable. It's just that you have to find a way to translate it. And if mm -hmm. translation is as narrow, considered to be as narrow a thing as finding an equivalent word or phrase, then yeah, a lot of things will be untranslatable. Mm -hmm. But uh, there, it's 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 all the product of human beings, you know. And uh, there's no way that you cannot convey to another human being what one human being is trying to express and themselves through. And you can't say, no, I, I can't do it. It's not possible. So that's that's not the case at all. Um, mm -hmm. Also, uh, this business, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about leave things in the original, leave words, leave phrases. I think, again, none of this is bound by any rules. You may yeah. choose with one text to do it. You may choose with another text not to do it. Uh, it is true that very often you will catch multiple layers of references and meanings in a text where you may choose to foreground something and push the others to the background and your translation choice may reflect that. And again, two mm. translators may choose to foreground two different aspects of a particular piece of text, right? Especially for poetry, this works. Someone may want to go with the rhythm, someone else may want to go with the sounds, mm. right? Uh, and uh, so neither is wrong. It's just a matter of what they see, where they see the poem residing, um, and and uh, what what best to take in there. Uh, but it it as far as theory is concerned, I think theory is quite fascinating uh, because it allows you to theory to me is something that you can always test with your praxis. So when somebody says this is what's happening in this translation and you can throw it against the work you've actually done yourself and sometimes mm -hmm. you say yeah they're right this is exactly what's happening it's just that i didn't do it consciously or thinking about it that way but you can mm -hmm. find patterns right even when the patterns are not consciously built into a process and mm -hmm. other times it's uh, and and the fact is that theory doesn't claim to be right all the time either right theory is just a model yeah. it's a model and it's it's the map it's not the territory and the map may be accurate, but the models, those who are creating models are trying to create models to get closer and closer to the territory. It doesn't sure. mean that every effort, and that's the way science works as well, right? So I like to say how you related to kind of a scientific pattern. Yes, yeah. When we are building models that try to explain the working of, of any, any bit of physics or the universe, we're not saying mm -hmm. this is the last word. What Newton built was not the last word, but what Einstein did with Newton's works was to give it more finesse and make it work. Um, you know, at a very broad level, Newton was right. At a, Einstein took it a little further. So even if you narrowed it down, he would still be right. So. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have had an Einstein's work without a Newton's work. So in the same way, you know, your, your work keeps evolving and getting closer and closer to what's happening. Um, but also, I like the fact that translation is a dance which will not quite, which will elude you eventually if you're trying to pin it down to rules and methods and processes, right? Uh, it's it's going to elude you. And much as I am a rationalist and I'm a complete disbeliever in anything mystical, Mm -hmm. uh, but I have to say that there are some processes that are internalized, and this is true for any any artist. 
Yes. There's some processes that are so internalized that you are not able to articulate them or or express exactly. them. Doesn't mean they're not methods. It's just that you can go from step one to step ten without consciously taking each individual step. It's just telescoped in in your head and in your pink muscles. So then mm -hmm. it sometimes look like magic, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is magic. <laughs> I magic. Um, I love that. I, think, I, I, I think, like um, I mean, what you're saying, I agree with that. I think like um, theory kind of theory doesn't drive anything. That's how I look at it. Like theory follows, and uh, it's still the work that is 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 primary, and and that's what theory follows and tries to explain and tries to pin down, as Arunava said, and which is fine. I. But I, I, I feel it's more, to me at least, like um, as far as my translation goes, it's it's more an interesting intellectual exercise to read that and, and find out, oh, this is how they think about these things. Yeah. And sometimes, yes, absolutely, it brings a clarifying lens to what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. Because um, I think like the process, as as you said, Ornava, you don't necessarily when you're doing something you don't necessarily think through each step it's just it's there um mm -hmm. and things happen and a lot of it happens just inside your heart and your brain um so seeing that kind of articulated which is not something i'm capable of doing so seeing someone else articulate yeah. it is it's always like oh okay that's very interesting to see that's what's happening um so yeah but i was thinking of your word um use of the word um bikel. So the similar, kind of the same um, time period during a day will, like, so I was thinking about how, like, within even the same language, there are cultural differences. So in Bangladesh, we use the word bigel, of course, but we also, a lot of um, kind of similar baggage exists for us with the Maghribir Wakt, which is the period of time when the Maghrib prayers are, mm. and or somebody or or like you know you you'll come across um, and during Bikel, the Maghrib azan has sounded, um, which probably it doesn't have the same kind of implication or doesn't have the same kind of nuance to um, a West Bengali reader, but to the majority of us, that's when you go home if you're a child. Like that mm. was your curfew. You heard that, you knew you had to be home in like before it's it's done. Mm. Um, so you know, even within the same language, you have these these differences, and that's one of the things, um, especially in in Rangumala, We were talking about that book earlier, because there are so many different cultures that within Bengal that that exists in that book. That was something that um, that I had to like think about a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of one of uh, if, I, if it's okay, I just want to give like a specific please. example for instance yes please. so in, in Rangamala there's like um this one scene where um so the young queen um I don't want to give away spoilers so in case you know anyone actually goes and finds the book and reads it but um a the a royal maid brings in uh, a mullah to um, in, into the um the, the zinana quarters or the the inner quarters of, of the royal household and so um, to, to the majority of source language readers, 
they will immediately understand that this has like multiple layers of transgression. It's a Hindu household. It's a Hindu royal household. Um, and uh, it's the inner quarters. So it's a man who's coming into the woman, uh, women's quarters. It's a Muslim man uh, coming into the inner quarters of a, of a Hindu household. And then there's like, you know, the class issue because this is hmm. um, the king's household and you know he's um, a low class, lower class um, person. And so like, how do you, and all of that can be conveyed just by the fact of his name. If you're more or less from South Asia, you kind of read the names and you can tell, oh, this person is Hindu, this person is not. Um, how do you convey that to a, a non-South Asian reader? And, exactly. and I hate footnotes, like not going to do that at all. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I try to provide clues like I would like, you know, I, I tweak the text tiny bits. So instead of like having the mullah brought in, he's smuggled in instead of having, um, shutting the window so that like nobody can see inside that there's like a man here. Um, like the windows are quickly shuttered. So like, you know, really tiny uh, additions like that, tweaks like that and overall, and this is also like what you were talking about Ornava, that we find yeah. different ways. There like untranslatability is, Oh, like, yes, it might not hit the 100% absolute mark at all times, but we always have to find a way. And for the most part, I think we do. Yeah. This is absolutely <laughs> mesmerizing. I mean, in so many different ways, you're explaining what really goes on into creating a good translated work. Um, and I'm thinking of sort of changing the direction a little bit. You know, we have we're talking about translations and, and theories of translation. And I want to shift a bit to the political grounds of it. So we are aware of the complicated and sticky histories between our countries or between communities within our countries too. Do you ever find yourself challenged by a political position, translating something, let's say that tests your political limits in whatever source language text there is? It can happen. I mean, for example, I, I translated um, classic uh, historical romance by Sharodindu Bandhapadhyay called Tungabhadra Tire, which uh, interestingly, when I when people, you know, it's been read by generations of Bengalis, and I don't know how many of them had actually cottoned on to the fact that it is extremely Islamophobic. Uh, whenever it talks about Muslim uh, rulers, it, the, the tone changes and the overall depiction is very clearly a good guy, bad guy kind of thing. But you know, mm. when you when people read it as a romance, they're not even, they're not, they're not registering it, if you know what I mean. But when you're translating, obviously you're reading it very, and then it jumps out at you. So in my case, I didn't do anything to the text. That's the way the text is. I added a translator's note at the end saying that the translator's position is not the same as the writer's. Wow. The writer may have taken a particular stance but I'm distancing myself from the stance, but I'm not changing the text for that reason. The text is the way it is. Yes. So, so yeah, these things happen. And then you also realize, I think oh, the past few years have also taught us, and uh, Dia and Amrita, I will tell you this, that um, as, as, um, as, as someone belonging to the male gender, I've learned to read uh, differently over the past few years. I've learned to read um, and watch out for things that I would not have batted an eyelid at 
10 years or 15 years ago you know to mm-hmm. see the innate kind of misogyny or the innate kind of intolerance that <clears throat> very often surfaces in the writing of male writers when they're writing and when they think they're writing very sensitively as well mm-hmm. so um so this is the kind of you know things uh, situations i have encountered as a reader and then uh, as a translator as a result of that um but i feel that it is important to call out these things it is not mm-hmm. my job to bodilize or to make it more palatable if anything mm-hmm. i need to make it clear that this writer did this and that this is the history of our literature and let's not turn our eyes away from it let's read it let's learn from it and let's learn to do better but that does not mean we change what's been done because that would be that would be you're erasing history then you're saying that it's never it was never there there was never a problem that is crazy right to say there was never a problem there was a problem there is a problem mm-hmm. and uh, i think translations can do a lot to bring that to the attention not with not uh, overtly or anything mm-hmm. but uh, you can because interestingly some languages uh, you can spot some things better in some languages so i think misogyny you spot better in english you know sometimes you don't spot it so well in your mother tongue because you are so used to hearing your mother tongue all around you that you don't stop to think about different elements of it yeah. i mean you know take the simple word mechele right the <laughs> word mechele to mean may has been used by bengalis for eons and i dare say many of them did it without any any sort of uh, any without using it to look down on women or anything but the point is you can use the vocabulary of the of the oppressor without being the oppressor yourself right in any circumstance and you must know that you're doing this and you must stop now what would you do you can just translate it as girls and make it very benign or you can find a way to make the reader question the word used and this question just leave it there and the reader if the reader mm-hmm. wonders why is it this way why is this word being used then you know at least it will trigger some line of thinking and maybe someone will go further and take it from there so i think these are the things interesting opportunities that translation does throw which i was not aware of earlier i mean i've only become aware of them of late i have to say this is brilliant uh, shabnam i want to ask a question about publishing itself but i want to first hear from shabnam It was so fascinating for me to hear you speak of misogyny in 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 Bangla literature because um I think as a a a woman reader and writer and translator that has I was thinking of like you know what I've translated and how I've translated over the years and um for the most part like I've chosen myself um what I've translated so I and I intentionally focused on translating more women writers than than male writers like that was a choice I made many years ago and I translate everyone um if I like my, my like you know like most translators I have to like the text that's like the first thing but I'm uh, in the middle of rereading a couple of writers um I used to read a lot when I was younger and despite the fact that I mean I haven't read these writers and I'm not going to name them um <clears throat> in in several years um over two decades maybe and even though i was aware i feel like now when i'm rereading i'm like a much older person i'm a much older reader there are things that i didn't notice when i first read these that i'm now like this is appalling like the level of objectification and and i don't think any of it's done with intent mm-hmm. it's just the way 
it is because that's just the way our culture is. Um, and like there are so many, like, one thing that comes up again and again in, in one writer's different, different books that I thought, so it's a very tiny detail, which is the man wakes up at like three in the morning or like five in the morning, he's had a nightmare or a bad dream. And he'll ask his wife, can you get me a glass of water? And I think 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought this. It was a natural thing. But now I think you're a grown ass man. Go get yourself some water. <laughs> Why are you waking someone else up? Why are you waking your wife up to ask at like five in the morning? Like, don't do that. But you know, if I was to translate this, obviously I would keep that in. Um, and I've not really been faced with that as much. Um, so I've not been, but that's like a really good solution or another, just add in the note, just calling it so that readers who might otherwise miss it will see, oh, that that is there. Um, but this is so brilliant because, you know, I, I've been thinking about what Arnavan, you both said about the language itself and seeped in misogyny or Islamophobia or other kinds of uh, problematic positionalities. But what about the politics of publishing? I mean, if you both do a translator's note, has there ever been a space where the publisher may have a problem with such a note or do publishing structures pose a challenge in any way in both India, Bangladesh? I mean, you know, um, Shabnam, you talked about uh, publication market in the US, but m more specifically about these kind of politics of publishing per se. I haven't really encountered that yet where um, a publisher or a venue is saying, don't want to publish this. But um, I am embarking on a, on a, I'm taking on a project next year um, that I'm curious to see when we start looking for, for a publisher for this. So let me tell you a little bit about this particular book. Um, so in the 60s, there was this massive hydroelectric dam that was built in, in Bangladesh, which was then East Pakistan. And it basically powered the nation. Mm -hmm. But as we know, like in many of these instances, there was massive displacement that happened. And the people displaced just happened to be indigenous populations. Mm -hmm. um, this was probably in, in, in our part of the world, one of the, our part of uh, the region, one of the biggest forced displacements that happened and um, thousands of people um, left for India and they're spread across. So this is kind of a part of our history that we do not talk about much. I did not know about this until I was like well into adulthood. And so um, there's a Chakma writer um, from the Chakma community, Shomari Chakma, she's a friend mm -hmm. of mine, she's a lawyer and she had to go into exile. Um, so she wrote a book, which is essentially a collection of oral histories from the survivors of that displacement. And she interviewed people who are still in, in Bangladesh, as well as people um, in Northeast India. Um, and it's a fascinating story. Like her own personal story is fascinating. She met relatives, she met, for instance, uh, a sister of her father's, uh, who after they went, after they uh, migrated to India, they had no contact with. So it was like, it's just like, you know, it's a, it's a very fascinating part of our history, a very harrowing, terrible part of our history. And there is not 
a lot of documentation. That generation is dying out. So this book is very, very important. Mm. And she could not find, she could not get anyone to publish it in, in Bangladesh. Wow. Because people are mm. scared. Mm. <coughs> and um, so eventually she had to basically publish it herself. Um, mm. So the book exists, but it is not readily available. And so anyway, um, I, we, we, we talked about this and I said, and a lot of, a lot of the people do not know that a lot of the people, this is like a cultural artifact for a lot of Jagma people do not know um, Bengali. So they can't read the text. And she was like, you know, there are a lot of young people, um, especially the one, the families I, I met with in, in India. And they're very curious about the book. But you know they don't read Bangla, so I was like, okay, we just turn it into English. That's that's what we have to do. So I haven't started the project yet. The um, the original text that she published, she had to revise because there was a lot more material which she couldn't in, um, include in the first edition. Mm -hmm. So now we have like a um, a solid manuscript from her revised version, and um, I'm looking forward to to starting this process. And I'm very curious to see how that will be received, what difficulties we face, because as you said, like this is something um, that might be a sticky point for, for many people. It's an un uncomfortable part of our history, part that we don't wanna look at, mm. but it's there, it exists. Sounds like a fantastic project. Arnava? Yeah. No, I, again, we, we if anything, the publishing uh, community is actually quite progressive. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, and uh, they 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 don't put up roadblocks for anything. They, there are sometimes legal issues because their lawyers will say, "No, you need more proof. You can't say this," which is fair because you mm -hmm. can't really say things that are unsubstantiated um, in a book. You can say them, you can share them in private conversation, but uh, the way things are changing in India, you never know where it goes. So far, I think one reason that books have not been interfered with largely, not entirely, but largely, is that no one reads them. I mean, the people who are concerned about these things don't read books. They're too complicated for them to read. They actually have to read the entire book to get something out of it. When they're low-hanging fruit, like, you know, somebody went and um, uh, filed a case against Wendy Doniger's book on Hinduism, yeah. and yeah. then the publishers uh, arrived at a, some, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but they withdrew the book from the market. So these things have happened. It's not that they have not happened. And I can tell you, Amrita, uh, if tomorrow Shukumar Rai's play uh, and Leela Mojumdar's plays uh, with mm. the figures of Ram and Sheeta, were to come out in languages outside of Bangla, <laughs> I would really like to see what happens. You know, you know, we should translate Lokone Shakti Shell. Benign, but there is this one fantastic line in Lila Mojumda's play where Hanuman sees Sheeta for the first time. He's been sent off to rescue her, but he doesn't know what she looks like. And mm. then she fi he finally sees this very, uh, this full-on figure walking up and uh, he's very worried that she's going to steal his biscuits because she looks really hungry. And what if she takes away his food? <laughs> and, and he's got a guide with him to sort of help him identify who he has to rescue. And the guide says, oh, no, no, she won't take your food away because she, she's very upset. That's Shita or Chite, as he says. And yeah. then Lakuna 
ব্রিলিয়ান্ট লাইন ভেরি সেজ এই শীতে এরম সুন্দরী তো কিষ্কিন্দের পথে ঘাটে পাওয়া যায় This is the famous uh, Sita, you know, we find more beautiful women on the streets of Kishkinda and Kishkinda <laughs> is the home of the monkeys. So <laughs> that line is a very loaded line indeed. Now, Crazy. I'd just like to know what happened in the current scenario if this were to get out of Bangla. And the funny thing is that even the people who would object to it in Bangla have not read it because they, this is not the kind of <laughs> books or literature that they will <laughs> read. I'm But if they read it. <laughs> if they did they would they would certainly be very interesting things happening and because these people are part of shotojitra's family you know the ramifications are really going to be exciting oh, but i think you should be doing this definitely but as we try to wrap up this absolutely fantastic episode i want to have two more longer <laughs> fun questions for you both um i mean you both mentioned there's joy in the translation that you began you know your uh, literary translating careers so long ago but i can't imagine translation is only all fun and exciting it can be messy and arduous and you've talked about the meticulous uh, ways that you translate tell us one of the biggest challenges that you both have had um in your journey as a translator so i've mentioned that um publishing industry in bangladesh is not like super robust and one of the big um big things that just doesn't really exist there is good editing mm. so it mostly depends on but i also know as a writer that when you're like in the middle of writing something you oftentimes lose track of of the details mm. so um you know that like certain things that happen like you know you start writing you you're reading this book and you'll suddenly realize that uh, a character's name has changed wow um so stuff like that mm. but one of the funniest things for me was um when i was translating rangomala there's this one scene where the zamindar um who was, apparently was uh, he's not good for much else he's a womanizer he's like but he was a crack shot so there's a um an infestation in the crop fields and so one of the things about wrong uh, shokirongomala is that shahin used a lot of local words and it's mm. set in like southern bengal um <clears throat> which is also region where my father's family is from and she uses a lot of those words um some a lot of the dialogue is is in that local dialect and i can't speak it but like um I I've, I've grown up hearing it so like I know the sound kind of. Mm. So anyway there's this thing where um he's uh, there's this infestation of of something called kalam in the crop fields and um the zamindar is called in by his uncle and he's like you know get rid of them so he goes off with his gun. So I asked her what does this word mean kalam I've, I've like not encountered this in this context before and she said it's pongopal. So pongopal are locusts. I'm just like that sense. But then later on there's a scene where um he's shooting them like how do you shoot locusts this doesn't make sense and then later on there's another scene where um one of the the um employees of the, the royal household are bringing back baskets full of black birds so I emailed her again like okay so this happens and then this happens and so like none of this is really tracking and she's like shoot i used that word 
So from the same time, I was on the phone with my dad. And so I was like, well, I can ask him. So I asked him. And he's hmm. like, no, that doesn't mean locust. That means it's a kind of black bird, um, which is like, they really like eating. So they go off the rice paddies. And I was like, oh. So I called her <laughs> and she's like, oh, your dad's actually right. I haven't lived in that region for, she grew up there, but she she's like lived in Dhaka for um, a, a large part of her adult life. And she's like completely forgot. And I remember thinking I need to check this when I was writing it, but then I forgot and it got published. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to remember to like change that in, in future editions. I don't know if she actually did that. <laughs> that was like really, really funny. But you know, you, you have to do that sometimes, just like um, track down what exactly um, the writer meant. And um, which is, I could ask Shaheen, but you can't always do that. Um, right now, I'm uh, working on a collaborative project with uh, Mamul Drahman, the translator and writer, who also happens to be my husband, and this is our first collaborative project. And we're working on um, this book called Jibon Amarbon, um, My Sister Life by um, Mahmoud Haq. And he's a writer who's like, every other sentence is just loaded with so many allusions, references, this and that. And tracking all of those down is, I think mm. it's like, that's probably one of the most difficult things we'll have to do. And he is, he he passed away several years ago. So there's no way to call him up and just ask, what did you mean with this? Mm. But congratulations on that new project. Thank you. Arunava? Oh, well, <laughs> I think the worst thing that can happen to a translator is when you're into a translation and then you suddenly discover that text is not so great after all. Oh. I mean, <laughs> not that it's a bad book. It's still a very good book. But the writing is perhaps sloppy. And as they are said, it could have done with some editing. And it's sloppy. And you your translation just slows down. But I really believe that good text translates itself. There's something very innate in the in the rhythm of language, which you can take from one language to another, you know. But when it's sloppily written, badly, awkwardly written, clunkily written, you struggle, you really struggle. And then you curse yourself. <laughs> and, and then you're also you're caught in that point where you say, should I quietly just make it you know, smoother, more graceful, mm. uh, or should I let the clunkiness remain and so on? And then you're 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 really annoyed at having to encounter these questions. You know, they're not really a question you should have to answer when translating. Absolutely. So fortunately, it's not happened to me too many times. But I have to say, it has. I'm not going to tell you with books, but it has happened. <laughs> I was going to ask you, but I wouldn't now. <laughs> also, sometimes like um, something that reads really beautifully in Bangla. Yeah. Seems mm. ornate and flowery in English. That, that's like also another thing. Like this is really beautiful. Why is it not the same in English? But a lot of yeah. times it just isn't. Yeah. Robin I'm actually going to Classic ask yeah. True, true Arunava. But you know, on that note, I wanted to end with this. To me, it's a fun question, an interesting one. But what you said, Shabnam, is absolutely true. Certain words translated just don't make the same impact or the kind of uh, poetic sense. And um, so this is where I'm kind of putting you both to work here. And um, it's almost like it feels like an assignment. But when uh, Radical Books Collective founder um, Bhakti Shrangarpure uh, came up with the title, 
of our series um, episodes, Mephil. We had a specific ethos in mind and we thought of South Asian culture. Uh, you know, the word Mephil conjures these history of arts, music, creativity. And yet when we were thinking of translating it, the word gathering, it just completely loses everything that Mephil is supposed to mean. What would you suggest for Mephil? Look, this isn't even homework. This is like a pop quiz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know that you need a word for it um, specifically because, you know, this is what you used to have in the 19th century, right? Those salons in, in your homes where uh, rich people would, would uh, run these salons. So I suppose you could use that word. But mm. to me, you know, this question actually and the point you made, Amrita, about um, some words not, you know, your, your, all translations seem to pale. Yeah. I think this also has a lot to do with the translator's anxiety of being too close to the language from which they're translating. Mm. You know, because we have lived our lives in Bangla, we are far, I think, overly worried about protecting everything in it. Uh, many people who translate, and this is particularly interesting when you're translating between two languages which are completely apart, far apart culturally and in terms of their roots and so on. So many people, for example, those who translate from Japanese into English, if you look at their last names, they're not Japanese. They're, they're English-speaking people who have learned Japanese and who are less emotionally attached, I would argue, than we yeah. are. So, hmm. you know... I, I think they, it's it makes more sense for them. You know, they they are more concerned with getting it right in English. We are more concerned with getting it correctly out of Bangla, and and that sometimes can create I think too much of a too much of friction. So I I have learned to let go. You know, I've learned mm -hmm. to let go and say that uh, I will. I mean, this is how I think of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I go to the Taj Mahal, it's going to evoke a lot of. <clears throat> for me every time I go. If uh, if uh, if someone from the US comes to the Taj Mahal, they're not going to feel all the things I do, even if they're looking at the same object. Now, for me, that's what a translation is, right? They're looking at the same thing, but they're looking at it from where they are. They're looking at something new. So they're looking at a book from a culture that they've not lived in. So I can't yeah. expect them to feel uh, and know and, and uh, have all these illusions in their heads. I should not. It's wrong to expect or to overload them with information that will yeah. ensure that they make the connection. And they, even so, they will not. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I've, I've learned to let go and, and say that, okay, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I can leave Mehfil as Mehfil and let the reader figure it out. Uh, if, mm -hmm. if, the, if the word yields a lot of its meaning in context anyway, you know what yes. is going on, there, right? And you can arrive at a judicious uh, guess. Uh, or I can somewhere else insinuate the word salon to to sort of nudge them towards what I'm getting at. But the fact yeah. that I'm still using the word mehfil and not directly substituting it um, will tell them that it's like, but not quite. True. Fair point. Absolutely. Shavnam, did you have anything, a final word to add? Um, I totally agree with, with you, Arnava. And I was thinking about the way you, you phrased it of, of letting go and... I think absolutely that has been part of my journey as well. Um, it has been a process. And that's one of the things when I look back on my older translations that I um, I think, as you phrased it, I moved more towards getting it right in English and not necessarily trying to bring everything it means to me from the Bengali. And I feel like that's okay. It is a different language, which means um, not just the words we speak, but um, 
it's completely a different culture, which means a completely different, like it's okay, it's a different world. Yeah. And that's that's what we're trying to get across. And as you said, Mifil is a gathering, sure, but it carries so much with it. Um, and Ceylon isn't, and Ceylon is the first word that came to my mind as well. But um, <laughs> but that's like very, not yeah. very much like a Western concept, it's like not ours, yes, but as exactly. you said, alike, but, but not the same. And, um, I think like it's okay that methyl cannot be conveyed with a with a single word. Um, mm -hmm. I probably use a gloss if I was using it somewhere, with mm -hmm. um, judicious interspersion of like you know descriptors here and there, um, to just as you said, Ornaba, to let the reader know that there's more here if you want to dig. And mm -hmm. I I feel like as a writer and a translator, I need to trust my reader to want more, to engage more, to to explore more, and and that's all I can ask for. Absolutely. Thank you, both of you. This has been an amazingly great episode on so many details and mesmerizing stories. I am absolutely excited about this episode. Thank you for this wonderful mehfil. Thank, Thank you for, you for all the great questions.